Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from a place where nobody dared to go. The love that we came to know, they call it Xanadu. Olivia Newton-John, we miss you. On today's show, we begin our three-part series, getting you ready for Old Timers Day. But first, here's some incisive NLT analysis. We root for a really good team. We root for about as good a team as any group of Mets fans have ever rooted for. You know something? As we're talking, the Mets have played 112 games. Their record is three games less than that of the 1986 Mets after 112 games. You know what might happen? Maybe it'll happen by the time you're listening to this. Maybe it won't happen, but we're still talking about it. If the Mets win three of the five games they have from Friday, August 12th into next week against the Phillies and Braves, top opponents, they will have the same record after 117 games as the 1986 Mets. Now, I think... You guys probably know that the Mets of 1986 won 108 games, best record by far in franchise history, never mind the postseason that year, which was also pretty good. Nobody ever touches the 1986 Mets in the course of the season. After 50 games, the 1986 Mets were 35 and 15. Two years later, the 1988 Mets matched them at 35 and 15. The 1988 Mets never matched them again. No team that's come along has matched them again. No team that came before them was as good as the 1986 Mets from 50 games on. So for any team in Mets history to come along and touch the 1986 Mets record, even if it's only for a day, because after game 117 of 1986, the 1986 Mets take off on a big winning streak and they become essentially uncatchable unless our beloved 2022 Mets go on a undefeated rest of the season type of streak, practically. All of this is to say, yeah, we do root for a really good team. The 1986 Mets, of course, are not who the 2022 Mets are really competing with going into last week. And I suppose it's still the case. The Mets' biggest rivals at the moment are the Atlanta Braves of 2022. Well, they played five games at City Field. They won four, the they being we, the Mets. This felt really big because the Mets don't play a lot of five-game series to begin with. They've only swept two five-game series in their history that I can think of. In 1970, at Wrigley Field against the Cubs when the two teams were fighting it out for first before the Pirates trumped them both. And 1984, going into the All-Star break, they swept five from the Reds at Shea, which was a big establishing your credentials type of series in that beautiful year. Mets haven't won any other five-game series, but winning four out of five, I'm pretty sure is also pretty unusual. And there's probably more than two instances of it. But one came to mind. September 1973, big month in Mets history. The Mets played what was effectively a five-game series. A two-game series in Pittsburgh against the Pirates, followed by a three-game series at Shea Stadium against the Pirates. So it was a five-game series. It was just in two different venues. The Pirates won the first game and increased their lead to three and a half games over the Mets. And the Mets were still, I believe, in fourth place. Then the Mets won every night. Not culminating in, but peaking with the perhaps most famous 
play on the base paths in Mets history, at least to my mind, the ball off the top of the wall, 13th inning, Ron Hodges, Cleon Jones, Wayne Garrett. We can get into the details some other time. The point is the Mets kept gaining ground on the Pirates in that crazy month of September of 73. And by the end of that five-game series, had gone from fourth place to first place and never looked back. Now, this year, it's a different story. We're not trying to make up ground. We were trying to put the Braves behind us. And it's tough to put any team behind you in the middle of August. But I think these Mets came as close as you possibly could to, if not slamming the door on the Braves, but telling them, you go worry about your wild card. We've got bigger fish to fry. Uh, there should be a Marlin series right after that by invoking the cliche fish to fry. But this felt like a huge deal, probably because it culminated in Max Scherzer on Saturday night and Jacob deGrom on Sunday afternoon, both being Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom as we imagined. And except for one of the games where we didn't get very good starting pitching, and I'm willing to call it an anomaly because Taiwan Walker came back and gave a very good showing of himself against the Reds. We just see nothing but really good starting pitching night after night after night. And I will throw one more impression at you, which is you have DeGrom and you have Scherzer. You're going to want them to pitch the most important games should we be in the postseason, because let's not take anything for granted. But I realize that among DeGrom and Scherzer and Walker and Carlos Carrasco and Chris Bassett, I would be comfortable with any of them pitching anywhere in any series. A game one, a pivotal game three, a deciding game five in the NLDS. And yes, if it comes to anybody who isn't the first guy you think of pitching game seven, you know what? We're probably going to be okay because these are all really good pitchers. We keep invoking the phrase really good. And I think we're kind of underselling it because we don't want to go crazy. But my God, why wouldn't you want to go crazy? This team is 34 games over 500 as your podcasters are speaking to you this evening. And they ain't been 34 games over 500 since late in the 2006 season. And we're going to pass the 2006 standard pretty quickly. And we're going to be saying, knock wood. My God, there haven't been this many games over 500 since late in the 1988 season. And should we keep that up? Then we are in. Haven't been this many games over 500 since late in the 1986 season. And I keep coming back to 1986 because if it's been your life as a Mets fan and you were around back then, you know what that means. We're watching one of the two best regular season teams in Mets history. I could have saved you all the details and just told you that, but I, I thought I should support it with a little bit of evidence. And again, 1969 doesn't really get heard from until they put on one of the great finishing kicks of all time. And we'll see where the 2022 team matches up when it has games beyond number 162. But what a pleasure it is to watch this team right now, game in and game out. The excellent newsletter Mets Fix said, so this is what rooting for a dominant baseball team feels like. And Tim Britton in The Athletic said, this is the team you've been waiting for in Queens for a generation, if not longer. And how true that is. You mentioned the rotation and the five excellent starting pitchers. I was looking ahead and it's OK to look ahead. It's OK to look ahead to getting a first round bye. 
and the second round of the playoffs, a three out of five, one of those pitchers isn't going to be in the rotation. Buck's going to have to make a tough decision there. I will let Buck, who is paid to make these decisions, figure that out in his collegial manner with his pitching coach, with his general manager, with all the analytics folks. I know that there's going to be postseason baseball at City Field. I'm pretty sure it's not going to come until the NLDS, meaning it's probably going to be a buy. But I'm, I don't have the let's look ahead and try to puzzle this out gene that you do. I can't do it. I don't care that we're seven and a half games in first place as we speak. I just want to win the next game. I've already admitted I'm comfortable with anybody starting any game for the purposes of, oh, my gosh, we have five starters and probably only four slots. Eh, You know, we'll figure that out. So you wouldn't want to know that the top two teams in the National League from the division winners get buys. And right now the Mets are the second seed and 11 and a half games ahead of the Cardinals, which are the third seed. So they're 11 and a half games ahead toward getting a first round buy. But you don't want to know that. I know that. I'm aware of the playoff situation. <laughs> I don't want I, I you told me earlier today. I'm looking ahead to the game on August 27th. and It looks like Taiwan Walker is probably going to start. I'm like, how could you possibly look ahead two weeks and try to set the rotation? And I know it's one of those things you can kind of game out. But you know what? That's like asking Taiwan Walker to just kind of hang his his right arm out the passenger side of a window as it's going by a tree with a low branch or something. And that's what I don't want to know. What I want to know is that we maintain the division lead because that guarantees a division championship. I'm not worried about the National League Central. I don't think we're going to be caught for that buy, which it's weird that we're also using phrases like, hey, we're going to get a buy because we never had that before. or Nobody had that before, but that's a new thing for baseball. But by the time October rolls around, knock wood, it'll all take care of itself. I'm looking ahead toward August 27th because you and I will be seeing each other in person for the first time in several years. And we'll talk more about Old Timers Day in a few minutes. But one thing about the present Mets is that it doesn't surprise you when there's a new hero every night, whether it's Trevor Williams or it's Joely Rodriguez or it's Darren Ruff. Who's Darren Ruff? But yes, there he was on Tuesday night with a big hit. There is a excellent roster filled with good players, and any one of them can be the hero that night. When I know Jeff is happy, he uses the word excellent a lot. (laughs) His favorite things, the things he cherishes, the things he holds dear are excellent, and he has used that word about 17 different times since we began speaking, and I love it because (laughs) if things are excellent, things are excellent! And yeah, we do have a different hero all the time. And there's been no better example of that than the mayor of Flushing, Daniel Vogelbach, who I'm going to guess that most of us had only a dim awareness of, if that much, before he became the Mets half a DH. Because Darren Ruff, another guy who wasn't exactly on our minds, I knew him more because he had been with the Phillies, because all those years he was on the same team with Cameron Rupp. And I would make the same joke every series. Hey, I thought Darren Ruff and Cameron Rupp were the same guy. Hilarious joke. But the thing that's gotten my attention, when you sprinkle in players onto a contender from teams that are not contending, because you're not going to get teams from, you're not going to get players 
from really good teams in the middle of a pennant race unless that team is doing strange things. I, I want to go back to 1981, not not to the Mets season, but something uh, one of the great sports writers in America, Tom Boswell, before he became a shill for the Washington Nationals, somebody tells me. Uh, okay. Something he wrote for Inside Sports. Again, how many podcasts, by the way, are quoting Inside Sports here in 2022? Great magazine. Didn't last. Uh, this was his wrap-up of the 1981 World Series. Oh, 1981 World Series I enjoyed because the Yankees got out to a two-games-to-none start and lost it in six to the Dodgers. This was Boswell's take on what went wrong. In the clutch, bats grew slow and tentative. On the bases, veterans found their instincts gone haywire as they inexplicably ran in the wrong direction. The worst of all contagious baseball diseases, pressing under pressure, became epidemic. Journeyman players, made confident by their reincarnation and pinstripes, suddenly reverted to humbler pedigrees, like clowns at a masked ball removing their masks. Folks like Rick Russell, Larry Milbourne, Aurelio Rodriguez, and Jerry Mumphrey began resembling the lowly Cubs, Mariners, Senators, and Padres they had once been. And that's always sort of floated around in my head around trade deadline time. I wonder if there's any truth to that. Like, oh, no, we got a guy from the Cubs and he's just going to go back to being a Cub, that sort of thing. And I don't think that really holds water anymore because players just change uniforms so much to begin with. So you take a good player from a bad team and he suddenly remembers he's from a bad team. Is Daniel Vogelback suddenly going to revert to being a Pittsburgh Pirate? Well, he was good enough as a Pittsburgh Pirate to be attractive to the Mets. I uh, could say the same thing. Tyler Naquin uh, went from the also ran Cincinnati Reds to the first place New York Mets. He's playing like a New York Met right now, which is a great thing to say. So it's I, I guess I would say that watching these guys mesh and watching the guys come out of the shadows, Joely Rodriguez, I felt so good on Sunday when he came in and bridged the gap between Jacob deGrom's first city field start and Edwin Diaz doing what Edwin Diaz does, because I think... We, as fans, tend to be, and I may be getting my my animal analogy wrong here, so forgive me, I don't spend a lot of time with wildlife. We, as fans, tend to be the hungry gazelles looking for the antelope that we can pounce on. Whoever is the 26th man on the roster, basically, whoever we figure is not the guy contributing, whoever is holding us back. And that's been Joely Rodriguez, I think, in the popular imagination for most of the season. And boy, did he hear it from every corner including this podcast last week when we said, hey, why don't we have a lefty reliever in the bullpen? And you could just picture Joely Rodriguez raising his left arm and saying, but I'm here. Well, Joely Rodriguez pitched in, literally, and in a huge game that the Mets not had to win because they were going to fall out of first place or anything, but really to catapult them forward. And after... Buck had used every reliever he goes to instead of Joely Rodriguez. He had a Joely good time, got us where we needed to be. And everybody has had a moment like that. And here, instead of invoking 1986, it, it takes me back to the things I've read about 1969. There was a pitcher on that staff named Jack Deloro, whose numbers don't look all that impressive. But he had one or two huge days as a Met pitcher in 1969 and every book that goes back and visits players from 1969 to ask where they were 20 years later, 40 years later, 50 years later, you always have to include the big game that Jack Deloro had. And Hey, how much wood do we have here? Cause I'm going to keep knocking it. 
knock wood when people are looking back on 2022. And they talk about Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor and Daniel Vogelbach and Max Scherzer and Edwin Diaz and so on and so forth. You're going to have to carve out a few pages for the Joely Rodriguez segment. And that's how you get to be this many games over 500, this many games in front. It's a cliche, and I'm not hesitant to use cliches on this podcast, but my God, it's a team effort. And it's a 26-man team and a manager who knows how to move them in and out, keep everybody presumably happy, but functioning and effective and contributing to, once again, one of the two greatest regular seasons thus far in Mets history. With Daniel Vogelbach, my analysis would be that when he was with the other teams, he didn't play in as excellent a lineup as he is now. But I called to your attention an article in Fangraphs called Daniel Vogelbach, Patient Until He Isn't by Ben Clemens. And it talks about his hot zones and there's some interesting graphics there. It's worth finding and it's worth reading. Whatever lies ahead, the Mets' tough schedule we hear. They have three games with Philadelphia, four games in Atlanta, and then they go to Philadelphia, which includes a day-night doubleheader. I'm not concerned. This is an excellent team, and the other team should be the one worried. Sometimes we're going to play excellent teams or teams capable of being excellent, but they have to play us. And by the way, as far as the schedule is concerned, those are big games. There are a couple of games with the team with the second best record in New York coming up, but it's still a very good record. Uh, after Old Timers Day weekend, uh, a team called the Los Angeles Dodgers is coming in, and they're very good. But then, here, this is me who doesn't like to look ahead. I looked at the September schedule. It's not that tough. Could be. Any team can slip up. Everybody is a major leaguer on the field, all those caveats. But you want to go chase history, let alone get yourself a bye, work on playoff seating. You want to take a look and reserve some time against the teams that the Mets are going to be playing in September because they're not the Braves until the very end of the season. They're not the Phillies. They're not the Yankees. They're not the Dodgers. Let's put it that way. I don't want to insult any of these teams. It's a nice schedule for a few weeks. So we get through this little gauntlet here, and it's substantial. The Dodgers coming into New York for the first time all year, that's substantial. Braves are still substantial. The Phillies are substantial. Let's get to September. I think you'll be, I won't say pleasantly surprised. It's not a secret who's on the schedule, but you can take a deep breath after the Dodgers series. Let's put it that way. Well, we look forward to the next games, and we look forward to talking about it. I think you can tell that Greg and I are having as good a time as ever talking to each other about these first-place Mets. We're having a good time talking to each other, talking to you. We're having a good time gesturing to each other sometimes. But, you know, we, we talk actually between podcasts, and we say, what are we going to talk about other than saying, wow, the Mets are really good. Hey, I have lived as a fan and a blogger for many years trying to say things about a team that wasn't very good many seasons in a row. And you find something maybe because it's easier to complain than it is to praise. But to find the little things about this team and try to put the pieces together and put them into some sort of context 
it's delightful for us. We, we hope we're making it interesting for you. And if you're a Mets fan, I don't see how you can't enjoy thinking about this team, having people talk to you and you talking back, perhaps. When the team is bad, you get used to them being bad. And you say, oh, my God, when are we ever going to get good again? But when you're this good, you have to kind of pause and say, my God, we're really good. I hope this lasts. And however long it lasts, I just want to ride this for as long as it will have me as a Mets fan. So bring on the Phillies and the Braves and the tough opponents and the perhaps less tough opponents and the buys and the seating and all of the things that await us, apparently, because we've been waiting long enough. Moving on. Old Timers Day is on August 27th. Greg and I will be there together because this is a big deal. A big deal? Yeah, Jeff, it's a big deal. You said there's going to be one in 2022. I find myself thinking, what century is this? Because the Mets haven't had one since 1994, which was the 25th anniversary of the 1969 Mets. If you are not a student of Mets history, you may say to yourself, what were the Mets doing having Old Timers Day in 1962? They were only a few months old when they brought old timers to the polo grounds. Well, you know, the Mets were born of the ashes, rose from the ashes of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants. So you brought back Dodgers, you brought back Giants, you brought back National League opponents, you brought back great players from both leagues. You even brought back some Yankees over the years. It was a non-discriminatory event, and it was a lot of fun, especially if you were a kid who wanted to know everything there was to know about baseball history. And here you had living history in front of you. So, yeah, in the early years, you had players who had played for other teams because the Mets didn't exist before 1962. As the years went by, you started bringing in some original Mets who were now retired, some miracle Mets, some you-gotta-believe Mets. By the 90s, you had Mets who played in the 80s, who won a World Series in the 80s. 1994, as I mentioned, that was the 25th anniversary of the 1969 Mets, and I was at that old-timers game. And I have to say, it was kind of a sad affair because I think the Mets stopped putting any kind of real promotional effort behind it. You know, it was a Sunday afternoon game and they had the ceremonies starting at about 1145. I don't remember them telling people, hey, you got to be here early. The Mets were not a great draw to begin with. So the ballpark was mostly empty when you're bringing out all these great players they did not go out of their way to give them matching jerseys, things like that. And that was sort of the problem. I think they just kind of let it wither on the vine and they just reached a point in the mid-90s where they said, ah, do we really have to do this? It was sort of like with Banner Day, which faded away after 1996. But like I said, this was always a big celebration day, a feast day, if you will. I think the only time the Mets didn't do it in their entire history up to 1994, there were a couple of years, 84, 85, it seemed to get lost in the shuffle. There was a national old-timers day in Washington. There were some other events. And the Mets were so good, to be honest, I didn't even notice because, oh, my God, the Mets are in pennant races now. But the Mets are in a pennant race now, and now we've got old-timers day back. I can't say enough good about Steve Cohn in this regard because when he bought the team, started jumping on Twitter, saying, hey, how's everybody doing out there? There was a lot of feedback. Hey, Steve, you're going to bring back Old Timers Day. And I wouldn't be surprised if Steve wasn't even aware that it had been gone all this time. But he remembered it and said, yeah, why don't we have that? Well, we have it now. I think, what, 60, 65 players are scheduled to be coming back from all parts of the great Met experience from 1962 into the 2010s. 
And the fact that we're going to get to see on the 60th anniversary of the franchise players who played 60 years ago. I went to my first old timers day in 1974. I don't know if I saw anybody who played in 1914. Maybe I did, but I think it would have floored me. But we're going to see a few of those guys. We're going to see them from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. I don't know if somebody like Travis Jankowski recently released will represent the 2020s. It's really exciting. And to have it in a year when the Mets are doing so well just adds a little karma to it, I think. So, yeah, I can't wait for this. We want to get you ready for the big day. So over this episode and the next two weeks, we're going to spotlight some of the players that will be there. And today we will feature three Mets that played in the World Series. We'll go in chronological order. And appropriately, we begin with number one. Let's talk about one at bat. You know which one. You know it by heart. The Red Sox were one out from winning, but our number one was up. And by the time he was done, the Mets had one. When I rewatched it this week, besides how nice it was to hear Vin Scully, I was struck by the length of the at-bat. Over four minutes, and it changed baseball history. With Bob Stanley throwing, Mookie fouled off pitch after pitch until one was too far inside. Or Rich Gedman was too slow to react. I really don't care. And Mookie contorted his body. The ball went to the backstop, and Kevin Mitchell scored. And then after more foul balls, the little roller up along first that got by Buckner. Ray Knight scored, and the Mets won. But there was more to Mookie than that. I'm not surprised when you said one at bat. Uh, you would pick that at bat. But there are a lot of at-bats in the career of Mookie Wilson. I love that we're leading off with somebody who pretty much occupied the leadoff slot for the balance of a particular decade. And as massive as the contributions of others were, the entirety of the 1980s were to be said to belong to one Met. That would be rightly assigned to the Met who wore number one, Mookie Wilson. Only Mookie played for the Mets in every season of the 1980s. As a matter of karmic symmetry, Mookie played for the Mets only in those seasons. He showed up with about a month to go in 1980, and he lasted until there were two months left of 1989. No Met played in more games in the 1980s, more than 1,100. No Met collected more hits, also more than 1,100. No Met scored more runs, almost 600. It was his decade. The rest of us were blessed to be living in it. What I really liked about Mookie Wilson is the way a few times per season throughout the 1980s, generally solid Mookie Wilson. Remember, this is a guy who batted between 271 and 279, five consecutive campaigns. You could set your watch by Mookie Wilson. Brought to you by Armatron, I assume. But Mookie Wilson would remind you what a spectacular player he could be now and then. There was inevitably an inning or a game or a series when he left you dazzled by his baseball brilliance. Robberies over fences, bullets to the plate, dashes from second to home on balls inside the infield. Four for fives, triples, steals, streaks, disruptions, and yeah, a little roller up along first. As if one particular Saturday night slash Sunday morning at bat requires explicit acknowledgement. Leading in to that night in 1986, we're already talking about a guy who'd been around for, he was now in his seventh season, having come up late in 1980, like I said. We had seen what Mookie Wilson could do. We could see that Mookie Wilson could score on a grounder to short. We saw him steal 58 bases in 1982. We saw him hit a game-winning home run off future Hall of Famer Bruce Suter late in 1981 to keep the Mets' split-season hopes alive another day. 
And someday we should devote an entire episode to the split season of 1981 and Mookie Wilson's home run. And Mookie Wilson, a fine center fielder, didn't catch everything, but he always hustled. At least from the time in his rookie season, which was 81, officially, a single fell in front of him in a game against the Cubs. A single's a single, he thought, so with nobody on, he could just trot over to where the ball landed, pick it up, and toss it into the infield. No biggie. Thing was, the guy who hit it took nothing for granted. Guy on the Cubs, veteran player, saw Mookie playing it casual just long enough to allow him to try to stretch that single into a double. This guy didn't have Mookie's speed, but he was going to use every bit that he had of it to take the extra base, especially if this kid, Wilson, wearing number one, wasn't going to go full tilt. So the Cub veteran made it to second, and Mookie felt embarrassed and swore he would never, ever let up again. From that faux pas on, Mookie said after he'd been retired for a while, he ran his heart out in every play in the field or on the base pass because of what happened that day. That Cub batter who taught him the lesson of assuming nothing might have appreciated Mookie's career-long mission to avenge that fleeting episode of malingering. Had it not manifested itself in the bottom of the 10th inning of the sixth game of the 1986 World Series when Wilson sent a ball trickling barely fair down the first baseline, you might have figured out already that Cub from 1981 had a unique view of Mookie Wilson's hustle at this critical juncture because he was playing first for the Red Sox, Jeff. <laughs> it all started five years before game six. I am verklempt from this. You're right to make that face at me. <laughs> Folks, you should have seen Jeff's eyes bulge out. Uh, yeah, it all started five years before. Mookie said, Bill Buckner hustles on every play. I'm going to hustle on every play. They would meet again all for our benefit. You can't stress enough when it comes to Mookie Wilson that it was really about more than a one at bat, even though, hey, if you're going to talk about one at bat, this is the at bat to talk about. I, I alluded to it, the, the scoring from second on the grounder twice in 1983. The Mets won games because a slow ground ball that the opposition thought was going to be a, an easy double play. Mookie takes off from second, and they don't turn the double play, and Mookie crosses the plate. That's electric. That's something I don't think anybody else has done. And just the good cheer is what I remember about Mookie Wilson. Again, he wasn't walking around with a big grin all the time. It could be a little circumspect, I was at the feeling. But solid, professional, hustling, and everybody loved him. Did you ever hear anybody go, boo? No. They went, moo. As recently as uh, Keith Hernandez's number retirement day, Mookie Wilson is introduced. City Field is a cow pasture all over again. The moo comes out. It was a sad day when he was traded from the Mets. He'd been having kind of a downslide late in his career. The Mets started to dismantle a contending team. They sent him to Toronto for the proverbial bag of balls, or in this case, reliever Jeff Musselman. What did Mookie do when he got to Toronto? He helped them win, got them to the playoffs, played a couple more years. I actually had the pleasure of seeing him in one of his final games at Shea Stadium in a Toronto Blue Jays uniform in a preseason exhibition, which seems like I'm making it up, but it really happened in early April of 1991. Retired after that has intermittently been around and not been around. So there, there's something I sort of admire about that. He likes the Mets, likes baseball, but doesn't need it. He's worked as a coach. He's worked as an ambassador. He's also done a whole bunch of other things in his life. And it's just always a warm feeling to see him come back. He thinks enough of us to come back. I will be thrilled. I'll be thrilled to see everybody on August 27th. 
But uh, Mookie Wilson, as much as anybody, deserves a long, sustained, one-syllable greeting. And I think we know what that's going to be. So once again, we call on the cows and we say, Mookie Wilson, certainly one of the Mets' favorites. And he's still a presence, as you mentioned. We move on to another presence. Mike Piazza wasn't always around as a Met, but his impact will last forever, especially with his number being retired and his plaque in the Hall of Fame. Did you ever have a fastball thrown at your head? Mike Piazza did, by several pitchers, including one of the two assassins we'll mention today. Here, it's Roger Clemens. In Game 2 of the 2000 World Series, Clemens, who could not bear the thought that Piazza owned him, threw inside once again, and Piazza refused to be intimidated. He swung and his bat shattered. Clemens, being the garbage he was, threw a piece of the bat back at Piazza, somehow claiming he thought it was the ball. If so, why did he throw it at Mike? It wasn't dodgeball. In game four, the fastballs were still coming, but Mike Piazza didn't flinch and hit a two-run homer off of Denny Nagel in the bottom of the third. That's the kind of Met he was. Few Mets had that kind of focus, that presence, that stature. Mike Piazza was traded to the Mets for three young players. One of them was Moogie Wilson's son, Preston Wilson. So there we are connected. Later on, there is some footage that lives in one of the highlight videos made in the 2000s of Mike Piazza warming up before a game and asking Coach Mookie Wilson, hey, Mookie, do you think you really could have beat out Buckner? It's nice to have those two guys linked for our purposes, and just as great Mets, both members of the Mets Hall of Fame, Mike Piazza, like you said, member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, and weren't we excited in 2016 when he made certain to tell the folks in Cooperstown, and the folks in Cooperstown listened, I want to go in as a Met. You could have made a case if you were agnostic that he could have gone in as a Dodger. He really established himself there, but I think he became a legend in New York. He became a legend to us the second he showed up. May of 1998, the Mets were a good team. I always take issue with the conventional wisdom that the Mets were nowhere, and then Mike Piazza came along and created this contender. The Mets were a pretty good team, sometimes a very good team, 1997, early 1998. But you know what they didn't have? They didn't have Mike Piazza. Adding Mike Piazza to a pretty good team is going to make a hell of a difference. Mike Piazza had roughly two-thirds of a year to get comfortable with being a New York Met before his contract ran out. He wasn't really comfortable. It took him a while to kind of throw off the discomfort, let's just call it that. Ground into a few double plays. You, you know what you notice when you see a great player, a guy who hit 362 as a catcher for the Dodgers, but now you're seeing him every day as a Met? He doesn't hit 362 every day, or he doesn't bat 1,000. Every day. So there was some feedback that he got from the fans at Shea Stadium that he probably wasn't looking for. But instead of saying, I just want to go back to California, I want to go to a low pressure market, I want just people to adore me, he said, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to get my money anyway. The Mets are going to give it to me. Even Fred Wilpon and Nelson Doubleday knew enough to not let him go. And he said, I'm going to win these fans over if I haven't won them over already. And he spent seven years, as far as I'm concerned, having us. In his hip pocket, the Mike Piazza era was underway legitimately, and I feel very comfortable calling it the Mike Piazza era. With all due respect to my favorite player of all time, Tom Seaver, 
and to David Wright, to Keith Hernandez, to Daryl Strawberry. We've got on the list. I don't think any Met has ever owned an era or has taken, we can say he can take, lay claim to it. It's his time. Then Mike Piazza did. 1999, 2000, 2001, even in his years that he's fading. He was the one guy everybody knew. He was probably more famous than the team he played for at that point. And yeah, I think to a great extent, he's the reason we were in the 2000 World Series. He played with a lot of good players, 99 and 2000. But he was the guy above the marquee. It couldn't last because he was a catcher and that would beat you up, even though he's the greatest hitting catcher ever. They tried to put him at first base. That wasn't really a very good idea. There were some other indignities along the way. But if I may, I'd like to share a short passage with you from a book I wrote about Mike Piazza. Not not a biography of Mike Piazza, more of an exploration of his era. If I had my way, I would have just called it the Piazza era because I always felt when people said, oh, you wrote a biography of Mike Piazza? I'm like, no, not really. I just wanted to talk about what it was like to sit in the mezzanine at Shea Stadium and watch this man do his thing. And what I want to talk about is what it was like seeing him go, seeing him toward the end, which was 2005, where he was no longer an MVP candidate, where you could feel the Mets sort of easing him out. But the fans suddenly realized that this wasn't just some catcher splitting time with Ramon Castro and Maybe he's hitting 250 this year, and maybe we have to look ahead. It was kind of understood all at once. My God, Mike Piazza's leaving us. So what I remember, and I put this in the book, applause arose regularly, standing ovations, curtain calls. They didn't exactly occur in a vacuum. It helped that Piazza began to hit in his last summer. In his first 17 games after the All-Star break, Mike seemed reborn. Five home runs, 19 ribbies, a 305 batting average. He started only 16 games of the 23 the Mets played in that span, but it was a judicious use of a diminishing resource. Piazza was 36 and Ramon Castro was capable, no sense draining Mike's battery. The renaissance didn't last, but the affection didn't falter. Mets fans gave Mike the farewell tour the franchise had never really given anybody. The Mets didn't provide that kind of tableau. Their greats were elbowed from the picture mostly, usually nudged out a side door as was the case with those who made 1969 and 1973 so memorable. No 1986 Met got to properly tip a cap as a Met ease into the sunset. No Met from 1999 and 2000 was given that courtesy either. When fans wanted to applaud John Olerud and Edgardo Alfonso, they waited for them to return as a Mariner and a Giant in 2003. Robin Ventura made the mistake of visiting as a Yankee in 2002. When he hit a grand slam, not a single, at Shea, as a Dodger in 2004, it was good for a four-base ovation that served as his au revoir. By homering in the final at-bat of his career, in his second go-round as a Met, Todd Zeal made himself a nice day at the end of 04, of which John Franco was offered a third of an inning. But that seemed more like serendipity than a brilliantly executed bon voyage. After seven seasons of grunting and grimacing, inning by inning, lighter, Al lighter, that is, became just another Florida Marlin. Some of it was business getting the best of sentiment, but sentiment rarely got a seat at the table unless it grabbed itself a chair. So what Piazza was getting wasn't exactly a last ride around the league. He wasn't retiring. He was just playing out his contract. But for the first time in the 44-year history of the Mets to that point, somebody was being sent off in style. It was the least that could be done for someone who so defined who the Mets had been for so long. When Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman dreamed of a trip to spring training on the West Wing, he told the White House press secretary, Mike Piazza is going to be standing in the batting cage. He's going to turn and see me. He's going to say, dude, 
when Grandpa Hugh on The Sopranos tried to convince AJ he couldn't be Italian if he didn't eat his artichokes. The young man shot back, so what, Mike Piazza eats nothing but artichokes? I mean, that's dicked up. When Doug and Carrie Heffernan's trip to Shea went awry on The King of Queens, they wound up in a holding cell, quote, Mets jail, and kept in voluntary company with a drunk yelling just one word, Piazza! Mike played himself in the romantic comedy Two Weeks Notice, foiled in catching a foul ball by Sandra Bullock. Hey, next time go to a Yankee game, Mike tells her. He considered doing the same in a Ben Stiller vehicle tentatively titled Go to Hell, Mike Piazza, but the movie never got made. He was seen hitting a home run in the time-traveling rom-com Kate and Leopold. He showed up on a now-disgraced business-oriented reality show as part of a scheme to sell toothpaste. Piazza 31 showed up on the back of Dennis Quaid's Young Son and Frequency. Fred Armis and his weekend update roving reporter Tom Jankeloff on Saturday Night Live strolled Central Park in a Mets 31 windbreaker. Piazza, New York catcher, are you straight or are you gay, asked Bella and Sebastian in a song written out of admiration for the ball player. The catcher hits for 318 and catches every day. And as a comment on the media's more gossipy tangents. Mike Piazza was everywhere for us. And he was everywhere because he was the best player we had year in, year out. The most impactful player, the most powerful player. He is number 31. There was no question when his career ended, when his Met career ended, especially in 2005, that number 31 was going to be the second Met player number to join 41. And in the years since all of that happened, went into the Mets Hall of Fame in 2013, went to the Baseball Hall of Fame, had his number retired, like we said, in 2016, he's really embraced the role of what I would call orange and blue eminence. He's not around all the time, but he comes back for special occasions. He came back to pay his respects, as it were, when Jerry Kuzman's number was retired. He did the same thing for Keith Hernandez when his number was retired. He shows up on opening day. He comes around to Port St. Lucie. Again, he hasn't made it his business to be a coach or a full-time instructor. He's not a broadcaster, but he, he likes the arrangement, I think, that he has with the fans. We're taking a guy who was from suburban Philadelphia, who probably didn't think all that much about the Mets growing up, went off to the Dodgers. The only thing he knew about Shea Stadium was that he hit well there against Mets pitching. And he went through the fire. We talked about not being automatically embraced once the euphoria died down that, oh my God, we've got Mike Piazza. And then he understood what he meant to us, the fans what he meant to the franchise, and with, well, I wish number 41 was still the guy who would come back and be that guy. He's not, can't be. Mike Piazza, whether it was conscious or just something he decided to do because somebody asked him, uh, he's been, again, the orange and blue eminence. So I'm delighted that, I don't know if he'll be the last guy they bring out, but he will certainly deserve whatever he is given on Old Timers Day. He will certainly deserve the reception he's given the honors uh, he continues to get, and one of the greatest days in the history of this franchise was the day they decided, you know what, and believe me, I love Todd Hundley. We can't wait for Todd Hundley to come back from his injury. Uh, we got to get a catcher. We got to get Mike Piazza, and oh my God, we got Mike Piazza. You could write a book about Mike Piazza. Oh, you did. <laughs> Moving to the 2015 season, the Mets' offense was jolted by the acquisition of Ioannis Cespedes. Let's go to game three of the 2015 NLDS, the first game at City Field, the first game after assassin Chase Utley took out Ruben Tejada. The crowd was bloodthirsty, said the AP. 
The fans might have wanted an inside pitch to Utley or more, but Ioannis Cespedes did something different. He destroyed a baseball thrown by Alex Wood. He had a home run into the second deck that went 431 feet. Watch it again. It's incredible how hard he hit that ball, but he could do that. The greatest retaliation is winning, said Michael Kadire. The Mets won the game and won the series, sending them to the World Series, and they couldn't have done it without Ioannis Cespedes. You talk about midseason acquisitions. Mike Piazza's impact may have been longer lasting and more historic, but in the moment, for what was at stake, I can't think of anybody, not Mike Piazza, not Keith Hernandez, not even Don Clendenin, World Series MVP of the same year that he was acquired by the Mets, who just light night and day. And it wasn't the darkest of nights where the Mets were concerned at the trade deadline in July of 2015, but it was pretty close for a team that was still in it, only three games out, but had been scuffling. I think we mentioned in another episode this year where the Met lineup was on a night about a week before when they faced Clayton Kershaw. And I'll just repeat what I said. Bartolo Colon was in the batting order that night, and he did not have the lowest batting average in the lineup. So the the Mets are scuffling. The Mets are looking for offense. The Mets are looking for the proverbial big bopper. And suddenly at about, what was it, 345, 355, 4 o'clock trade deadline, we get Yoannis Cespedes from the Tigers, previously of the A's, previously of the Red Sox, previously in Cuba. So he's not a lifetime minor leaguer, major leaguer. He escaped Cuba, came to America, was a big attraction. We saw him in 2013 at City Field as part of the Home Run Derby which he won by hitting balls in places that we didn't know could be reached by baseballs. He was this great, mysterious figure almost. And suddenly he's in a Mets uniform. And suddenly, you know what 2015 becomes? It becomes National League Championship year for the New York Mets. And especially where winning the Eastern Division is concerned, that's Yoannis Cespedes' impact. That first month or six weeks, carried the team. The team was doing well, but he made them a monster. They talked in 2000, specifically John Stearns. The monster is out of the cage, is what he said when Mike Piazza hit a big home run against St. Louis in the playoffs. Ioannis Cespedes was a new monster. He could hit home runs. He could run the bases. He could do some fancy fielding. I want to take you back to two particular games in the Ioannis Cespedes Orva if I'm pronouncing that correctly. One from 2015, one from a little later, because I think it's easy to forget that, oh yeah, that's right, Ioannis Cespedes was here for about five years, although it wasn't exactly every day. Let's go to the heart of the Ioannis Cespedes story, and I'm going to once again avail myself of something I've written before. I wrote a book after the 2015 season called Amazing Again, about how they won that pennant. The book wouldn't exist without Ioannis Cespedes. Of that, I am convinced. We're going to go to Colorado, uh, two consecutive nights, the Mets won 14 to nine and 14 to nine. I think we may have even discussed that in the past. The, uh, the concept of the unicorn score, the Mets had never won by 14 nine. Suddenly they were doing it two nights in a row. But never mind that. I want to talk about the Friday night game at Coors Field. Ioannis comes up, he doubles in the first inning, and he scores on Lucas Duda's single to make the score a very innocent one nothing. Second inning, he hits a grand slam because that's what Ioannis Espinosa does, and it's seven one Mets. 
setting the tone for the rest of the night and that weekend, really, the rest of the way. The Rockies, because they're playing in Denver, elevation, they creep to within 7-4, but Cespedes says that's okay. Uh, he leads off the fourth with another home run. The damn thing now is tied at 8-8 eight to eight in the sixth. La Potencia, as they called him, he taps another Rockies reliever for a two-run shot. So we got three home runs now. In the eighth inning, after Travis Darno and Michael Conforto homered back-to-back, because, again, we're not a one-man team, peerless yo from near Manzanillo, Cuba, that is, singles, advances on a ground out, and then he steals third, because you can never have too many runs in Coors Field, and then he comes home because Wilmer Flores doubles. So while the Colorado pitching staff was presumably checking to see if the team's health insurance covered group therapy, Cespedes was signing off on one of the most gobsmacking performances in Mets history. Three homers, a double, a single, five runs, seven RBIs, and that stolen base. Fonzie once collected six hits in a game in which he homered three times. Carlos Delgado once drove in nine runs. We've seen cycles from Jim Hickman to Eduardo Escobar. But nobody had ever seen a Met make the earth move the way Cespedes did that Friday night. And I think after that moment, I knew we had something special on our hands and we wanted to ride shall we say, that stallion, we know about Cespedes and ranches and horses and all of that, to ride him all the way to October. And if I can just fast forward slightly to the year 2017, not a year anybody's going to write books about where Mets success is concerned. You may remember the Mets went to the World Series. They went to the playoffs the next year. Cespedes had a lot to do with that. Then everybody gets injured and everybody's playing badly and the whole thing collapses. And Cespedes is out for a while. Now, Yeah, and I'm going to read from something I wrote on Faith and Fear that June. In fact, I think, Jeff, you may have been at this game in Atlanta because Cespedes had been out for a while. And I'm going to give you the whole give you the whole thing. It's only a couple paragraphs here. And I think you'll enjoy the television show I'm about to invoke. I adored Entourage when it began airing in 2004. Then I tolerated it. Then I asked myself why I was still watching it. Then I rooted for it to go away, get stuck with it to the bitter end in 2011, because I can be that way. My gripe with the HBO series that ran for eight long seasons was that whatever predicament Vincent Chase and his boys would get into, there was always some magic solution that rescued them. The worst of it, at least through season four, was the episode when Vince's crew had to get to Cannes and implacable forces conspired against their travel plans. They were stuck. There was no way they were flying. Then Kanye West shows up at LAX with his amply spacious private plane, invites them aboard, and ferries them hassle-free to France. Hey, look, everything worked out fine again. How freaking ridiculous is that? You can't expect your problems to be solved every time by some larger-than-life superstar conveniently ambling by with an enormous problem-solving vessel. Unless you're a Mets fan. You and Cespedes and his bat take care of everything, don't they? Yo comes back from six weeks of major league inactivity. He barely plays any rehab games. He lets it be known his legs aren't fully ready for everyday action. And he hits a ninth inning grand slam to put a tenuous double letter opener definitively out of reach. How could that possibly happen so easily? Because he's yo, that's why. Because he's yo, and he took a very yo swing and deposited a very yo home run over the SunTrust Park fence. In that instant against Atlanta, he became the plot point to end all plot points. You can be picky about whether he was the actual game changer. The Mets were winning two to one when he took Luke Jackson into the clouds. But I know he's a blog changer. I was going to write about how good Robert Gazelman, Wilmer Flores, and how horrifying Estrubal Cabrera and Fernando Salas had been all day, and whatever else was about to go right or wrong on a tense Saturday afternoon. 
But nah, I'm just going to get on Yo's plane and enjoy the very sweet ride. And that's what it was like when Yoannis Cespedes was on, when Yoannis Cespedes was healthy, when Yoannis Cespedes was, shall we say, engaged. His Met career kind of trickled out. The end of the 2017 season, missed most of the 2018 season after May, This, despite hitting some very big home runs in between things. Missed all of 2019. There was some question about what became of him on his ranch. If he was attacked by a boar or fell into a hole and all kinds of stories we entertained ourselves with. And then miraculously, in July of 2020, after the COVID lockdown and after they decided to bring back baseball for a few minutes, there's Jonas Esmus back in the Met lineup. You'd kind of forgotten he was still under contract, but he was of all things, the designated hitter when the National League, in a preview of a dark future to come, decided, you know what, with everything going on with COVID, let's just not even bother the pitchers to hit. So Ioannis Cespedes is the DH opening day in front of zero fans at City Field. Jacob deGrom pitches. Jacob deGrom is not amply supported, but the Mets win one nothing because Ioannis Cespedes, after not playing for more than two years, never mind that nobody had played in 2020. He hits the big home run to beat Atlanta. So right to the end, practically, Ioannis Espedes was full of magic and drama. He was also the guy who kind of marched to his own drummer. I wish found myself rationalizing the 2020 story of Ioannis Espedes. I wish we could just say, and he hit that home run, rode off into the sunset on one of those horses or cars or whatever he came to spring training in, in 2016. But if you remember, he kind of ghosted on the team. <laughs> A week or two later in Atlanta, just didn't show up to the ballpark and everybody was wondering what was happening. And the Mets wanted to make clear that uh, this isn't on us. Yo was being yo. And that was too bad. And I know at the time there was a lot of fan feedback. We don't need this guy. Who is he to do this? I'm thinking, did you guys see 2015? How could you not think anything but, oh, my God, thank you, Yoannis Cespedes, and whatever else happened, happened. And when I saw that after that, not exactly will ride off into the sunset together holding hands uh, breakup. He's coming back for old-timers day. He's an old-timer from two years ago, for God's sake. And not only that, he is scheduled to play winter ball in the Dominican for the first time in quite a while this winter. So Ioannis Espinus lives. He lives among us. He will be back, uh, or at least he says he'll be. And I hope he is there. And I'll give him the hearty... Thank you for everything ovation that you know we never had a chance to give him. And this is one of the things I love about Old Timers Day, that all the day in, day out, we'll call it nonsense or falderall or whatever word you care to use, all those things we get caught up in because we're trying to win games. We want our team to win games. And when something goes wrong, we get mad at somebody. Old Timers Day clears all that away. You know what we remember? We remember the home run that was hit in game three against the Dodgers. We remember the home run that was hit off Smoltz in the 99 NLCS. We remember the ground ball that the first baseman in a Red Sox uniform couldn't pick up. That's the magic of Old Timers Day, that we get to put our arms around those moments and the gentlemen who made them happen and tell them, my God, we love rooting for this team. We love rooting for you guys. Thank you for 60 years of Mets baseball. Thank you for your role in it. And Ioannis Cespedes, Mike Piazza, Mookie Wilson, all the others. I should already be standing and working on my ovations. I get the feeling because I can barely sit still thinking about it. Yo wasn't a Met for a long time, but it was never a bore. When he's playing winter ball, if 
MLBN cuts into one of their showings of the Sandlot or for the love of the game to show Ioannis Cespedes at bat in the Winter League, I will be there. He always attracted our attention and he always will. You can't wear a compression sleeve like he did and not be blinded by the light. Greg mentioned two of his books, and he doesn't know that I'm doing this, but I'll do this anyway. Greg wrote a book called Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star. And he wrote a book called Amazing Again, how the 2015 New York Mets brought the magic back to Queens. And as of this recording, each of them is on sale at Amazon for the Kindle format at the price of $1.99. So if you haven't read them, please go to Amazon and look for the works of author Greg W. Prince. $1.99? What a bargain. I am so flattered that they would put my books on sale. I want them in people's hands. I want Mets fans reading them. They were written a while ago, but they're in print or they're in Kindle print. So yeah, if you don't have them, like the man said, go check them out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And who said we don't have advertisers? We just advertised my book. Greg also mentioned one of my reactions, but you couldn't see that if you're listening to the podcast, but you could see that reaction if you're watching our 24-7 live feed from the NLT house that is streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. But you can also just listen to what we have to say, and uh, we'll paint the word picture for you. Before we go, I want to mention a tweet from August 6th by John Nolan. And if you haven't seen it, it made its way around Mets Twitter. John Nolan is a Syracuse graduate who is the high A announcer for the Padres. And he tweeted, my fiance says, if this tweet gets 3,900 likes, we can use Edwin Diaz's walkout song as our wedding reception entrance music. Well, as of this recording, it has over 15,000 likes. So the guests at John Nolan's wedding will hear Blaster Jacks and Timmy Trumpets playing Narco. And if you haven't seen that tweet, please go and like it as we did. John and fiance, I now pronounce you saved and closed <laughs> by the authority vested in me by Edwin Sugar Diaz. We thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to rate our show on Apple and Spotify. And Greg, how should they rate us? They should rate us as high as any Yoannis Cespedes home run to the promenade boxes. Five stars, six stars in honor of Mike Piazza, 31 stars, if you so choose. If you don't think we were worth it, then stay the hell away from the rating box. Thank you. <laughs> don't give it one star like Mookie Wilson. We'll be back. <laughs> we'll be back next week to continue our three-part series, getting you ready for Old Timers Day. Until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2022. Music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.